Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Political Science. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be talking with Vanessa Williamson, who is the co-author of The Tea Party and the Remaking of Republican Conservatism. I hope that you enjoy this interview. Welcome, Vanessa, to New Books and Political Science. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. Great. It's a real pleasure. It's a real pleasure to have read the book. Um, before we get into it, maybe you can introduce yourself, where you are, who you are, and, and what came uh, before uh, this, this interesting collaborative book project. Well, my name is Vanessa Williamson. I'm a graduate student at Harvard University. I'll be going into my fifth year in the fall. Um, and prior to coming back to grad school, I was the policy director for an organization in Washington, D.C., uh, Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America. Wonderful. Um, this um, book taking place, being published in the middle of your doctoral program, makes it a really interesting thing for for your career. And is this is this your dissertation topic as well as the the book? Have you gotten things uh, out of order? <laughs> yeah, I'm afraid this is this is um, uh, I, I, quite a, a separate project. Mostly, um, my dissertation work is on the politics of taxation, but it looks at support for taxation. So it's kind of the flip side of the Tea Party story. This was actually a project that um, was really uh, started just out of curiosity, not particularly as a researcher, but just as a person um, experiencing the beginning of the, the, the Tea Party activism and just wanting to understand it better. Great. You work with Data Scotchpaul on the book. How did you come to work together on the book? And, and how did you divvy up the, the writing and analysis, which I think you describe as, as uh, or at least your methods as eclectic? You did lots of different things. So how did you two work together on this? Well, Dina's my advisor, and uh, we worked together uh, on some other things before. And I had, for uh, just a class, I had decided to, to do a little bit of work visiting uh, Tea Party groups. I originally actually wanted to study both sides of the health care debate uh, during the sort of the fight to pass Obamacare. Unfortunately, the only um, side of the debate that was particularly a- active in Massachusetts was, um, was one side of the debate, the Tea Party side of the debate. So I ended up focusing my paper on that, but it, it got me involved 
involved in this subject. And so Tita and I had been talking about uh, doing some more work together, and this was just seemed really fascinating. So uh, it went from being just a, a class paper to an article and then to a book. Great, great. Let's, let's get to the book itself. Um, the, the common story that's told about the Tea Party is that it was born when Rick Santelli called the Tea Party protests on CNBC in February 2009. Is it right to attribute this to Santelli or are there roots that go back earlier than 2009? Well, the, the kind of rhetoric and the kind of concerns that people in the Tea Party have are certainly much older. They represent a really long strain of American uh, conservative thought. And many of the people in the Tea Party have been politically active since long before, uh, you know, Rick Santelli gave his, his rant, as it was called. Um, but I think that that particular moment catalyzed uh, what had been more scattered opposition to what uh, conservatives believed the Obama administration to represent, sort of a move towards... Um, you know, greater redistribution, uh, move towards sort of uh, a more Keynesian response maybe to um, the economic crisis. And so there had been scattered protests of one sort or another opposition to the stimulus that, that was organized under the banner of the porculus, um, which was not, of course, a particularly catchy name. Uh, so I think what, what Rick Santelli really provided in a way was uh, uh, some language to rally around that uh, various different groups, including a lot of uh, talk radio hosts, recognized as as a really powerful kind of symbolism that encapsulated a lot of conservative uh, fears of of the uh, new administration. Yeah, and and as you you mentioned just earlier, uh, you met with a lot of Tea Party activists. You went to their meetings. I did. Actually, that was among the more interesting things. At the time, a lot of work had been done where people were just sort of um, going to Tea Party rallies and trying to interview people there, and I felt it was a little bit um, of an unfair approach in a way because, you know, at, at a rally, people are all sort of riled up, and, they'll, um, and they aren't expecting to do an interview, so they, they you know, are sort of having to answer questions on the fly. Um, and I, I thought it just wasn't really the right way to get at people's real thoughts and not just hear some slogans that had appeared on their signs repeated. Um, and I thought it was also a little bit unfair to the activists who um, were getting portrayed as, as extremely angry people. Uh, and I thought that, you know, any any rally, if you, if you don't agree with it, you, they probably seem a little bit um, sort of overly emotional or something like that. So I thought it would be really worthwhile to spend time actually visiting these groups, not only to understand what uh, Tea Party activists were really thinking, but to understand their organization. Because it's not just, from my perspective, it's not just uh, the number of people who happen to agree with you, it's how well you organize uh, that really matters for your political impact. And so how welcoming were they? Where did you go, first of all? Well, um, so I'm at Harvard, so my, my first meetings were in the greater Boston area. Um, and actually, the Tea Party activists I spoke to were generally pretty welcoming. Uh, they usually recognized right away that I was unlikely to be there as a participant, simply because, I mean, I'm, 30, I'm 31 now, uh, but I'm, I'm genuinely decades uh, younger than most Tea Party activists. So, you know, I, I stood out in the crowd, if you will. Uh, most of the time. There were occasionally some college students, particularly in the Boston area, but most places I went, um, I really stood out. So people recognized that I was probably there out of, out of curiosity in, in one sense or another, and people were very happy, I think. There was a little bit of suspicion at first, but once people got to talking to me, they were really happy to uh, share their views and share why they were engaging in politics. And I think that's actually one of the real strengths, uh, as you portray, of, of the book. 
um, capturing this, this local dimension of it. You described something close to a thousand new Tea Party groups of various forms um, uh, starting in, in that time period, which is just really a massive growth, and it's not unrelated to all of these IRS conversations that, what, that are going on now. But there's also this very establishment side of the Tea Party, and, and some have posited the Tea Party is simply the Republican Party just being presented with more clever or different branding. So who were some of those real establishment players that also make up the universe of what the Tea Party is? Right. So that's the way that we present the Tea Party in the book is to present the three different parts of the Tea Party. I've talked a little bit about the grassroots Tea Partiers tend to be older, conservative people, often politically or civically engaged prior to their engagement with the Tea Party. But that's only one side of it, as you say. Uh, there are two other parts of the Tea Party that were really central to its organization. Uh, one of those parts is the sort of elite Tea Party activists. Now, these are long-standing Republican uh, often officials or party of, um, activists of one sort or another. The sort of classic example is Dick Armey, uh, who of course has been a Republican his entire life and has held all sorts of offices. Um, and so now he he ran an organization called Freedom Works, which uh, hopped on the on the Tea Party bandwagon just in terms of adopting the language very quickly and helping to organize some of the early protests. Um, of course, he's a, a you know a real establishment figure, uh, but I think that some within the Republican Party recognize the opportunity of the Tea Party as a chance to not just sort of uh, rebuild the Republican brand at a time where it had you know suffered a pretty serious beating in the election before, uh, but also to sort of re-inspire the base at a time when you know activists, as they tend to be, are have lost a little bit of their energy after having lost the White House. Um, and so I think that that's why you see certain elite Republicans um, taking that Tea Party energy and adopting it to a platform they had long supported in terms of support for lower regulation on businesses, support for lower taxes on high-income people, um, and so sort of diverting that Tea Party energy into that platform. The other piece of the Tea Party that's definitely worth mentioning is uh, the conservative media, which is uh, not really equivalent to the explicitly uh, progressive or liberal media, it's a far more contained world, it's a far more um, organized world uh, that includes not only talk radio hosts like Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, but also a lot of um, uh, on online sort of forums and, of course, Fox News. And so these two components, I mean, what Fox News and what right-wing radio really did was reach the Republican base. Right, the people who would be interested in the Tea Party as an idea, people who were deeply concerned about the Obama administration, um, groups like Freedom Works didn't have the capacity to reach them. Uh, Freedom Works had been a major player within D.C. with a lot of uh, legal, um, you know, sort of conservative legal activism. Groups like Freedom Works, like Americans for Prosperity, had been very involved on on that side, but they didn't really have a grassroots base of their own. So they couldn't have tapped into the sort of grassroots conservative concern about Obama without the assistance of the conservative media, which played a major role in first promoting the Tea Party idea. I mean, not that many people actually watched CNBC in the middle of the day. Mm -hmm. Not that many people actually heard Rich Santelli live, but it was broadcast constantly on Fox News and constantly on conservative radio in the weeks that followed and really developed a coherent um, banner that uh, grassroots conservatives could rally behind. 
and you so you have been alluding to this a little bit, but what I was struck by was was whether this was uh, mainly a grassroots movement or mainly an elite based movement. It seems that everyone agrees about the speed of the movement. And you write in the book, the modern day Tea Party came together in record time with a mark with remarkable elan and force. To what do you attribute this speed? This is something that's happening in, you know, mere months after the Obama election. We're not talking about halfway through his administration. We're talking about February, Absolutely. a month after the, uh, uh, he's inaugurated. Um, and, and then it accelerates from there. If you could talk a little bit of, from the perspective of, of how, this, how these, um, this movement was organized, what do you attribute the speed that it, that, that it took place with? Well, I think that, I mean, the way we talk about it in the book is sort of to, to recognize the power of, of Fox News as a, a community of um, uh, conservatives in America. Within only a few weeks of, uh, well, I mean, almost immediately after, in the week and or a week or two after the Rick Santelli said the thing about the Tea Party, there were some scattered Tea Party protests. And, you know, they were organized mostly by local talk radio hosts, so they were really the first out the gate in terms of coordinating their local community. Now, obviously, they have a tremendous sort of megaphone that they can use to reach conservatives in their area. So they had rather effective, small, very local protests that I think got maybe one story on CNN um, at that time. So that's at the very beginning of March. But after that happens, you see a very quick increase in the frequency with which people on Fox News are talking about the Tea Party. And it's not in response to those first protests. It's actually a week or so later than that you suddenly see this um, ramping up of this Tea Party language in the lead up to what were the first sort of major Tea Party protests for tax day in April. And so I think that without the power of the conservative media, it would have been very difficult for conservative activists to reach, you know, the hundreds of thousands of people they managed to reach in those first few months. And I think more particularly, I think it's quite possible that the, the messaging would have been really very different. If you look at the very early Tea Party protests, you see a larger libertarian contingent, um, and you see just a much wider, I mean, it looks, in the, the views are, are in no way the same as Occupy Wall Street, but they have a little bit more of that diversity where mm-hmm. a bunch of different people are attracted to an idea, but they don't necessarily stand behind a particular one shared platform. And that's what you see in the very, very first Tea Party protest. But by the time you get to April 15th, when people like Newt Gingrich are organizing and are going on Fox News regularly to promote an upcoming protest, um, by then you really see the message of what the Tea Party is solidify, and you see... Uh, you know, Fox News make a very real effort to coordinate people to be at these events. They had their anchors act as um, sort of the highlight of the show at these local Tea Party events. At certain points, Fox News refers to the upcoming Tea Party protests as FNC, Fox News Channel Tea Party. Um, so they play a tremendous role in solidifying and mobilizing uh, the conservative base around this new idea. Your subtitle, which is uh, The Remaking of Republican Conservatism, how has the Tea Party over the last several years changed conservatism in the U.S.? It's a great question. So, I mean, it's important, of course, to note that 
the Republican Party has been becoming more conservative for decades, and that's not something that the Tea Party did. It predates the Tea Party substantially. But what happened during the sort of Tea Party era of, you know, the early Obama administration is that the Republican Party took in really unprecedentedly large step to the right in a very short number of years. Um, and so I think that what you see during the, the with the sort of rise of the Tea Party is a real uh, solidification of the conservative base for the first time not really around social issues, right? Prior um, sort of uh, remakings of the Republican Party had been around the moral majority or the Christian coalition and had been organized primarily through those large sort of church groups. This is the first time I think you see the modern Republican Party really organized around uh, economic policy issues, uh, at least on its surface. Uh, the sort of opposition to taxation, the opposition to regulation, uh, those may not be the uh, issues that are at the heart of why actual grassroots Tea Party activists are engaged, but they are the central message that comes out of the elite Tea Party groups, and they are... Um, and it is the sort of economic conservative, the sort of far-right economic conservative groups like Freedom Works, like Americans for Prosperity, that have really benefited from the Tea Party resurgence. That's great. It's so interesting. You, you end this, the, um, this book, and, and I think this must be the, the later paperback version mm -hmm. of the book with an epilogue about the 2012 election. So where does the Tea Party stand vis-a-vis -vis the 2014 and 2016 elections? Are there still a 1,000 Tea Party organizations that are active, or has this doubled or cut in half? Um, the, the, where, where are we today? The actual um, grassroots Tea Party groups uh, suffered serious decline after 2010. There's a sort of steady rate of decline. Um, hundreds of the groups stopped meeting. It's not to say that none of them are meeting. In fact, they're, they're still in the news today from time to time, um, often around issues of immigration. Uh, I saw recently that um, John Boehner was getting some, some trouble from a, a local Cincinnati Tea Party group about uh, that was basically organizing itself in opposition to immigration reform, which is a central issue for actual Tea Party activists, though it's something that Tea Party elites have tried to keep a little bit off the table. Um, so grassroots Tea Party groups suffered a sort of serious decline in terms of their numbers, uh, though some of the groups do remain very, very active. Um, and I think that you saw already even in, in uh, 2012 that Tea Party groups never united in a serious way behind any one candidate. Uh, there was all sorts of support from people in the Tea Party who are, in fact, Christian conservatives, uh, for people like Huckabee. There was support, I remember, back when I was doing interviews, for people like Donald Trump. Um, and there was also support from Sarah Palin and Michelle Bachman, all sorts of different candidates. And they weren't able, even then, when their numbers were by far stronger, when their organizations were more intact, uh, even then there wasn't coherence behind a particular candidate. I think the challenge the Republican Party is going to face going forward is to convince voters who are not Tea Party voters that the party has a place for them. I think that in many ways the Republican Party has been defined. You know, there's a sort of, there was the... Um, the power that the Republican Party received in 2009-2010 in terms of this new energy from the conservative, from the sort of far-right conservative base that really helped um, Republicans organize in opposition to Obama's various policy, policy initiatives. Uh, but, it, you know, it came with 
uh, a particular kind of understanding of what it means to be a Republican. And I think that now the Republican Party is struggling to cope with that. I mean, you see them struggling to address immigration, uh, which is something that, you know, if they want to address, to reach a broader audience, they are going to need to do. But, um, is something that's very hard for their base to accept. Again and again in interviews, I would hear that um, immigration was actually one of the very top issues for Tea Party activists. It came second in a, in a survey we did only to uh, taxation and budget. Immigration was number two. And that was something that Tea Party elites really would prefer not to talk about, or Republican Party elites as well would really prefer not to talk about. So the Republican Party is going to have to find a way to simultaneously keep people who are, you know, Tea Party activists, who are, in a real sense, their activist base, engaged without uh, fundamentally alienating uh, the various demographics that don't fit the Tea Party, uh, the majority of which ended up voting for Obama in, uh, in the last election. This is just a, a really, really interesting book and, and covers so much ground in, in, in not, much, not much space, but just, just such, a, such a great read. Um, what's next for you? We, we started talking just a little bit about your dissertation research. Um, is there a book that will come from that? Um, are you are you close to finishing? The question no one wants to wants to hear. But are you are you out the door soon? Uh, I certainly hope so. I mean, it's going to be I'm, it's going to be at least another year. Um, but so in a way, my work was actually. Um, shaped by my Tea Party research uh, because I was at a Tea Party rally back in, oh, I don't know, early 2010, I'm guessing. Um, and there was a woman uh, who was who was speaking at this rally. Uh, she was one of the lead-ins for Sarah Palin, actually. She was a local uh, Tea Party activist who had lost her son in Iraq. And this was, uh, you know, I mean, I, I spent a long time working on uh, veterans issues, so it's something I feel very strongly about. And she was... Um, complaining about, you know, all of this tax money being spent on undeserving people. And for me, having, you know, worked in D.C. for so long on trying to make sure that we're spending tax money correctly on the people who've served in armed forces, um, you know, it was it seemed like there was this funny gap that, that she wasn't thinking about the ways in which tax money had um, supported her family and was supporting the, um, you know, the widow and, and son and, um, and children of her son. And that those were uses of tax dollars that were really patriotic, um, and that were things that she would absolutely agree with, but it was sort of invisible. And so, uh, the work I'm doing now is looking at American support for taxation. I mean, a lot of people want to talk about, and I, I want to talk about, and I studied the Tea Party, um, American opposition to taxation, because, you know, I mean, for one thing, things like the Tea Party are very colorful, um, the tax revolt of the 70s and early 80s was very colorful, um, but most people actually, well, for instance, most people think their taxes are fair, uh, and that's Republicans and Democrats, over 60% think their taxes are fair. Um, and there, you know, there's a tremendous history of support for progressive taxation in this country. Uh, the income tax passes state by state as a constitutional amendment. So I think that uh, there's a little sort of an overemphasis in the literature on uh, trying to understand opposition to taxation and a real gap in terms of understanding American support uh, for not just taxation, but progressive taxation, and that's what I'm, I'm looking at now. Well, I hope, and no pressure, but <laughs> whenever that project is done and, and, and out, that you come back and, and, and talk about it, because it, it sounds like a really interesting follow-up on this first book, The Tea Party and the Remaking of Republican Conservatism, uh, available from Oxford University Press. 
uh, strongly recommend that everyone go out and read it. Vanessa, thank you very much for your time today. Oh, thank you.